my theory always was that the great revolutions and counter-revolutions get made late night at some dive or some club or some whorehouse or uh, things like that. Uh, here in Brazil, where whorehouses are legal, I basically close every single deal in a whorehouse. You know, it's, it's a perfect way to you know, get things straight, you know, and we all understand each other, and that's why. Conservatives and repressive people are afraid of that, so they try to limit the amount of uh, nightlife that you have and the amount of fun people can have. And repression seems to be interesting to politically. It creates a mentality in the public that is more prone uh, for conservatism. Money, success, fame, I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-host, the co-founder of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. Uh, Randy is off on special assignment. He will be back with us next week. Um, we are celebrating the icons, the party monsters, the club kids, the downtown deities, the architects of the New York club scene. Uh, legends all, and today we are joined by a true legend, a beloved icon. I've never heard anyone say a bad word about him, ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed. I mean, <laughs> I is... talking about it. I mean, they should be talking behind my back horrible things. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I take that back because Michael Alec did have a few choice words about you, and oh. we will get to that. <laughs> But he is a he is a club owner. He's a club owner, a club manager, a club creative director, a promoter. He has uh, been working at dozens and dozens and dozens of clubs over the last five decades. Welcome to the show, Rudolph. Yes. Yay, Rudolph. Um, I imagine that you are in the deepest jungles of Brazil right now. Where well, are you really? I am in a jungle that is not burning right now so i am no i am in sao paulo which is sort okay. of uh, the, you know, the new york of south america yeah it's huge it's huge okay well that's a very different thing and um what you've been in in brazil for for a while now how many years well this is the third time i came to live in brazil so first time was in my childhood the second was in the 70s quite fun i must say and now it's been 15 years in Brazil doing clubs always. And what is it about Brazil? I, I imagine everybody there is gorgeous and fun and um, probably uh, uh, rich, rich, rich. Is that it? <laughs> there are some poor people I heard about, but they're not my customers. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> the, Well, it's fun, 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 except the president, right? Oh, well. Now it's in Brazil, we have a sort of like an imitation, a bad imitation of Trump. How bad can that be? I mean, it's... Rudolph, what are your clubs in Sao Paulo? How, how many clubs are you running? What, what are, tell us about them. No, nowadays I, I don't run clubs anymore uh, because I, I see that the crowd is like 20 years old, right? So uh, 18, 20, uh, there is no limitation of age in Brazil, which is great. Uh, and... Uh, but it's not my age, right? Uh, so I'm designing clubs and I, I put together clubs. I sometimes import brands uh, and uh, do clubs, bars, and also restaurants because restaurants are the clubs of the 2020s. 
and it's the you know the so-called restaurant restaurantization of, of nightlife it's all became restaurants it's all about eating it's all like bagatelle uh, you know which is sort of boring but anyway it's something so what you do is like if there's if there's a huge club that's happening in in Lisbon or or Tokyo or something like that and they want to open a branch in uh Brazil they come to you and you help open up you cuz you speak Portuguese and you can get the licensing done and things like that is that what what ha- what it is Yeah I mean the last club uh, from New York that I brought was Provocateur and mm. Before I brought what I brought the Mokai and I brought uh, Kiss and Fly. Yeah, Kiss and Fly. Kiss and Fly was a big success. Uh, I, it had um, 14 branches in Brazil that I wow. I, I licensed and so on uh, to all, practically all states in Brazil had a Kiss and Fly as they as well as they should. <laughs> well, now do you get do you get money? Uh... From each of those, or I mean, how lucrative this? It sounds like a very lucrative gig. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I put you on the spot. Afford to buy a computer and you know, things like that. You know. No, it's it's great, but I mean, one has to share, one has to also pay royalties to the gringos, uh, and so everybody's happy, sort of. You know, it depends how many times you get laid, and so that also is important, right? <laughs> I, I was just so curious. Why? Why you left? Tell us about leaving New York, because I always imagined. I only ever imagined you in New York. You are the king of New York. So, so, so did I. But you know, uh, the um, the crowds and the music and the whole spirit of New York started to change. And then came Giuliani, and uh, and I said, I mean, I, I'm not gonna. I just felt that my time, my stint in New York was over. And I became partners with uh, Mark Fleischmann at uh, Tattoo, which was that club uh, for yuppies and uh, uptowners. I never understood you going the yuppie route there. That I, I've got to say that when, when you went to Beverly Hills and Aspen, I was flummoxed. I, it was really a shock to me. Well, it's, it's the following also. I, I got a certain way I got tired of the so-called underground or, or alternative and so on. Uh, mainly because of hip hop, I can't stand hip hop music, and I don't uh, like the way Mars, which was uh, the the last club in New York. No, it was the one before the last club in New York. Uh, that was hip hop, and it was a, a big mess. They, I mean, I, if I am not mistaken, some four or five people got killed there. No, not all in one night, but like little by little. And I there, there were there were lots of stabbings. It was in the meatpacking district, and things. It was not a, a area that was very safe at night, anyway. Right, and then that crowd just. I mean, the, the stories that happened there, and then suddenly, because of the hip hop crowd, everybody was smuggling drugs inside the club. Uh, it, it was just weird. That the the door security, the back door security was letting the dealers in. In a in in a nutshell, it what happened at Mars was the beginning of what ended up happening at the Limelight and Big Style, you know, in big time. It just the drug dealers started to take over spots inside the club. I was not the owner of that spot anymore. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, because the guy was dealing there. Um, then I remember that one night. I was uh, making out with some chick on the rooftop. And <laughs> I love stories that start off like that. 
Oh, some good stories start like that, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the rooftops in the meatpacking, they're all more or less the same height. And I, so I was there and suddenly I see a guy coming from the other rooftop of the building next door, came and dropped the packet into the rooftop of, of, uh, of Mars. And I sort of looked at that. I said, hmm, interesting, right? Uh, it's a delivery. And uh, so I sort of waited to see who was picking up that packet. And who was it? My manager. <laughs> I mean, that sort of I got the idea that all was lost, you know? And I was like, Everybody's on the take, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna go to jail at the at the end of the story, like uh, litigation or something, right? Right. Your manager, your manager takes the money, but you go to jail. I'm responsible, right? And so, and what happened to litigation ultimately, right? Uh, in a certain way, and then the the other incident that also made me disbelieve was at the then I started to frisk people at the door, which is something completely against my principles. Okay. Oh yeah. But I had to do it because people were bringing guns and knives into the, into the club, and, and so the the old uh, good spirits uh, were gone. And so, I, but then I was at the door, and if it was a VIP or something like this, I was basically or somebody I knew, a friend, of course, coming in. And then there came a model, you know, a beautiful girl, which I was interested in. And I was not married anymore at that time, and. Uh, I was interested in this girl, and so uh, the security wanted to frisk her, and I said, no, no, wait a minute, wait, I, I, let me do it, you know, just because it's you. So I wanted to start a conversation with that chick, and uh, so I, and she got really upset, and I said, no, relax, you know, it's, it's me, I'm a nice guy. So I opened her, her purse, and there was a gun inside the purse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so she was bringing the gun for somebody inside the club, right? Oh, oh man. You know, I, rem I do remember going to Mars, and later on, you know, when Tunnel and everybody else started implementing the same policies, they would go through my wigs. They would, you know, go, if I was wearing a skirt, they would look up the skirt. It got very invasive after a while, and it was because of those, you know, the bad eggs that, that did that. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst part of this story is that I did not get laid with the chick, obviously, right? So, <laughs> so then, so then you you went in with Mark Fleshman and was it uh, to um, tattoo at Beverly Hills in in Aspen? And did you enjoy that, or I can't see you liking Beverly Hills at all? <laughs> you know, it was an interesting experience because um, I mean, Aspen it was interesting also. Uh, great uh, cougars uh, with nothing to do. And in LA, uh, I mean, I got to meet uh, people that um, I would never expect to meet. And uh, they were all there because in Beverly Hills, it, Tattoo was basically the only interesting place to go in Beverly Hills for all those geezers that uh, live in Beverly Hills. And we divided the crowd very well because uh, Mark Fleischmann was taking care of the Beverly Hills crowd, the, you know, the establishment, and I was taking care of their sons and daughters. So that was a good division. There was a club upstairs and the restaurant with the shows downstairs. And the geezers uh, at, the, at the bar. The, the geezers at the bar is like a whole chapter of like real 
snazzy guys <laughs> that was bat suits uh, standing there and like having drinks. What years were these? What, what was this the nineties? Was this the mid nineties? Yeah, 91 to 94 uh, was Beverly Hills. I want to go way, way back because I, I know you loathe nostalgia, but we're, we're going to go through some things here because I learned, and I never knew this, that you started as a stockbroker in Berlin in the 60s? <laughs> yes, yes, among other things. I mean, jack of all trades, I was at window dressers. A window dresser in the time in which stores still had the interesting windows, right? Uh-huh. And nowadays, what? Uh, only Bloomingdale has interesting windows. I don't even know if it still has. And there, there's no Barney. Barney's used to be fun, but that's not fun. There, there's no Barney's anymore. There's no Barney's, I know. So in those days, every single store had to have fabulous windows. And so I, I did that. And I was a stockbroker. I mean, I was, did a lot of things. Uh, I think that you know, a life that's interesting you should have a lot of variety. Now I'm a designer. But then you opened a club in 1970, and it was your first club, and it was called Park, and it was in Berlin. Yeah, it was. It was in a in a World War II bunker uh, in Berlin, uh, and it was uh, subterranean. The club. The club went, uh, if I'm not mistaken, six floors below earth. And, and it oh, was that's fun. You know, it's fabulous. And it was 24 hours, uh, open 24 hours. And people lived there. Right? It was hippie time. People, <laughs> lived there. people were having traps and uh, scissors and uh, crazy shit. <laughs> I'm not laughing because of seizures. I'm just laughing at the idea that, that it was so it was a very decadent, as you would imagine, a Berlin club would be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it had to be. I mean, I contributed a lot uh, for the decadence-inspired in Weimar Republic and so on. But, uh, and, and the, I mean, the music that played, people danced to anything, right? I used to play just uh, birds uh, singing without <laughs> to it and people are dancing like crazy to it. <laughs> that's the acid that was the acid <laughs> of the time um were, were there were there nightclub celebrities like was klaus nomi around was grace jones romy hogg was she around ronnie hogg was around yes uh, klaus nomi i don't think so i mean i don't remember him i think he was too young uh, right uh, i believe i don't know but you see berlin was isolated because of the wall and people in general uh, did not want the general public did not want to go to Berlin. They did not want to live there. So much so that the government paid for young people. They paid like uh, if they were studying in university, the government paid half the rent of wherever you were living. You could live in a luxury apartment. The government was paying half the rent because they wanted people to go there especially young people, which were not afraid of uh, tanks uh, coming from the Soviet Union and things like that. So the city was extremely cool and had no immigration from the countryside nor from other dopey cities in Germany. And therefore, it was an extremely urban environment, extremely cool, extremely hard and uh, nuts. And uh, I, you know, that was a good basis to come to New York. Was this the time, if you were in Berlin in the 70s, I'm thinking this was when David Bowie was in Berlin. Yes. Doing, yes. Right, so he must have been at your... Yeah, no, he, he went to a park uh, every once in a while. 
he, but he was, I mean, crazy story. He went to Berlin to clean off his uh, heroin habit. I mean, you couldn't have chosen a worse place to clean up, right? <laughs> because uh, at that time, the Soviet Union was exporting drugs to the West in order to weaken up the West. And the, all this stuff came through Berlin, and the Berlin was a distribution center of drugs, of heroin, to the rest of Europe, right? And, and so, I mean, David Bowie went there. I mean, poor guy. <laughs> uh, what I did, I brought bands uh, a lot, you know, that went to this club. And I, I remember, for instance, uh, it's, it's amazing because the sound equipment in those days was just so primitive. I mean, you had to put together a sound system. And then Santana came, or somebody like that. Credence Clearwater Revival came. <laughs> kind of shit. They all came, and they played with minimum equipment, and they played for like a thousand dollars. You know, a concert. And well, then again, Madonna played for uh, two hundred dollars the first concert. <laughs> right. So yeah, everybody has to start somewhere. Right? When you uh, came to New York, uh, you were um, at uh, what, like um, Peppermint Lounge first, maybe, for, or, or did you start with Danceteria, the first Danceteria? What was your first club in New York? My first club was that uh, one nightclub, Pravda. Uh, you must oh, be... yeah, well, that, because we were talking to Diane about this. I have been hearing about Pravda for 20 years. People have been talking about that one damn night, how fabulous it was. Yeah, I know. And this, this one night club, uh, the party was really so fabulous that it made my career in New York. It's unbelievable. And, and, and people still remember. I mean, Anthony Hayden Gaston remembers. And, uh, and funny thing <laughs> that every once in a while, some photos appear of Pravda, of that night of Pravda. At that, that night was like the opening of a, uh, a club in Bauhaus style, which was new. Right, because it was all decorated by, and it was in Soho, when Soho was still artsy and in art place, yeah. Yeah, it was, Soho was like really cool, uh, and it was the opening of a club, Bauhaus style. Uh, they were sponsored by Fiorucci. No, it's Fiorucci. There you go. FFF, fabulous Fiorucci fashion fantasy, uh, and all this guy. As a matter of fact, uh, did you guys read? I just discovered this book by Eve Babbitt. Uh, she is a, 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 an LA journalist. She used to be an it girl in LA in the 60s and 70s. Then she became a writer. And she wrote an entire book at the time, at the time, about Fiorucci. How fabulous it was, how incredible, how this and that it was. It was and you read the, this book today as it is total science fiction, right? Because, <laughs> because I, mean, <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was like, fell apart immediately, right? But it was, it was a very hot brand, wasn't it? It was like, it was almost like the ah. brand was, the brand was the thing that was hot. It, it almost didn't matter. You know, it wasn't like a long established design house. It was like, you know. Well, but it was also, it was like uptown, downtown fashion, Hollywood, everybody converged there. It was like, it was a, a nexus. For everything, yeah, and, and Troy Arias and, and Klaus Nomi as attendants, and it never had anything to sell. You remember this? I mean, you had you had fabulous windows, and you say, "Look, I want this, I want that." You enter inside there. Where where is it? Don't have it. It's just, <laughs> I mean, the whole store was full of uh, people wanting to buy desperate uh, to, 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 to fifty four with the Fiorucci fashion. 
it. You could not get it. It was only in the <laughs> So then after Pravda, that made your, your reputation, and then you were able to open the first Ancestoria? Right. Then I opened the first Ancestoria, which was completely out of the the beaten path. Where was it? I never went to that one. Oh, oh you missed out. Uh, <laughs> Was, uh, that was, was pretty much, that was intense. Uh, it was in the Garment District, 37th Street. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, 37th Street. And uh, uh, I was obviously concerned that the downtown crowd would not go that far. Uh, but at the same time, the same street had the, the music building right in front of Densuturia. And uh, Madonna was living there, although she was not known. And um, so I employed like a lot of people from downtown to work there, including in the construction, including, uh, for instance, Jean-Michel Basquiat uh, painted a wall inside uh, the club, but I wanted him just to paint a wall and he started to become artistic and I fired him. And, <laughs> and Keith Herring was a busboy there, right? And then I remember that place, uh, uh, listen to this. So Keith Herring was a busboy there and he was like, ah, I need money. So, so I said, okay, Paint the whole floor, an entire floor in that club, which had three floors. Paint the entire floor. He painted the entire floor of, uh, of this dance area. Uh, like in question of uh, three days, was ready, done. Fabulous, black and white. And uh, so that went on for uh, a few, two, three months, and then wipe it over and paint uh, something else on top of this. So <laughs> nowadays, millions and millions of dollars are like behind those walls in that building. And, uh, oh, oh, well, I, you know, was reading about all the different people that have worked at Danceteria, and I'm just going to do a true and false very quickly. Um, true or false, uh, LL Cool J was a busboy? LL Cool J, I don't think so. No. Well, that's what, that's what he said. He said that in an interview, which I thought was weird. Then it, then it must be true, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Madonna was an elevator girl. Is that true? That I've always heard that. No. No. No, she, she never worked at Dancetura, although a lot of people say that she was a co-check girl, that she was... Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, she did not work at Dancetura. But she um, did her first show there, We right? The... That was the first one. Her first four shows were there. Uh, and then she, uh, the second or third show, the third show, Howard Stein uh, came uh, to see her. And mm. he was uh, the, the record uh, company guy that signed her first record deal together. Simo Stein, that's it. Simo Stein at Psy Records. How, Howard Stein is the guy from Xenon. Yeah, <laughs> Zinon and uh, Obar, right? And anyway, so it's Seymour Stein, right? But now Sade worked there as well. Sade was a bartender, right? No, she was. Uh, she did their first show at Densuturia. Their first American show was at Densuturia. Sade was British. Yeah. Uh, she was in England. Well, that's so weird because I keep reading all these things that all these people who say they worked there and the, okay. no, nobody did this. Everybody's lying. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, no. I have no problem with them saying that they worked at that situation. Because I was trying to imagine like Sade and Madonna working at the same club and hanging out after. I, I just couldn't do it in my head. So <laughs> yeah, that, you're right. I mean, difficult. Uh, that would be a difficult combination. Sure. So how long did um, that first Ancestria last, and why did it close? Well, it got busted because it was 100% illegal, and I'm proud of it. I'm 
And so it was an after-hours club. It basically opened uh, Friday night, and you no, know, sometimes it went through and uh, closed Sunday morning. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love that too. And, uh-huh. and I wish New York still had that. I I wish so too. But in Sao Paulo, you have it, and you will have it on next month when it opens up again. But uh, it uh, basically was 100% illegal and. Um, it got busted eventually because it became too big. And suddenly I see like uh, uh, two page articles in the Daily News and the New York Post, uh, magazines writing about this, full page this, celebrities, uh, the, the Rolling Stones party released their photos all over the world, everything at the Institute. There was uh, no bribe money that could hold this back for long. So, so hey. Uh, so eventually, and that also contributed to the fame of Densicheria. I think it was a nice way to go down in flames, sort of, <laughs> and in order to then later be reborn as a phoenix, uh, or that story. So then the, the second Densicheria then was all legal. I mean, you managed to get all the licensing and everything was... Right. Is, and yeah. did you find that a little more boring? Uh, did you like the, the second incarnation as much, or...? Well, at least it, it would not get busted, right? which is already a big thing. Um, it, it was a different entity, and uh, it lasted much longer. And I believe the history, like this big age of uh, Densituria, was made in the second Densituria. And also, I had uh, an access to capital. Uh, through John Argento and Alex Di Lorenzo, which were the partners and investors, and uh, a capital that I did not have at the first Ancestoria. The first Ancestoria was basically a real underground alternative, uh, very little money. That was cool, also, of course. But this one was—I mean, I could bring—I could bring Chardet, uh, you know, to America, which cost a fortune, cost three thousand dollars at the time to bring Chardet. For the first American show, and um, I brought I, like innumerable bands. All the new wave bands, all the early eighty bands oh, okay. went yeah. through there, right? Uh, the only band I did not bring it was uh, because sort of three thousand dollars was my budget limit for a band. Otherwise, it would not pay back. It paid itself back because there were so many comps, also, right? So, fifty percent of the crowd was comp. So. Uh, so 3000 was the limit, and I remember that then came this totally unknown band called uh, U2, and <laughs> they wanted $4,000, and I said, what? You thieves, you want to steal me $4,000? Are you crazy? <laughs> Get out! <laughs> so they never played that Centuria. We spoke to Diane a, a couple episodes ago, and um, she had a really wonderful story about uh, meeting you at Mud Club. And she talks about how the, um, she was chasing another guy, and then she turned around and noticed that you were chasing her, and that that sort of was like uh, the spark that she needed to realize that she needed to pay attention to you. Um, what, what are your first remembrances of Diane? What, do you, what was your first impression of her? And how did you remember that meeting? Yeah, no, I do remember, but uh, uh, we have endless discussions about this meeting. Because uh, it was not at the mud club, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> it was at the at the first Densicheria 
on the staircase. And, uh, and I, she never told me that she was looking for another guy. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's all forgiven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, no, it uh, it was at the first dance in Syria, and then uh, this went on, and and uh, had a happy ending in marriage and uh, no kids, thank God. And, <laughs> <laughs> you had such a, a magical relationship, and it was so iconic. But it's wonderful that you two have such a wonderful relationship now, and that it's something that's endured, you know, almost forty years. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great relationship, and I'm so happy that it's uh, developed into this this way. And uh, so it's a great friend to have. And uh, so even we exchange uh, WhatsApp today uh, because she's making this major plastic surgery. I, I talked to her yesterday as well. She's in Zurich doing a reality show, and it sounds really fascinating. Uh, I wish we could have talked to her about that. I'm, I'm next, by the way. <laughs> So there was Pravda, then Danceteria, then the new Danceteria. And where does where does Jim Farrat come into that? Because he was your partner for a time, wasn't he? And right. then you guys had a big falling out, right? Right. Uh, well, uh, I mean, there are other clubs in between here. If you're just, uh, we have just, There's Studio 54. Studio 54, Peppermint Lounge. Um, oh, Peppermint Lounge. That was Jim, right? That was between... Between the first Anceturia and the second, there was Studio 54, Peppermint Lounge, and maybe some other club. But anyway, it's on, on my website. There is a complete list of uh, all the clubs. It's more than more than 130 clubs at this point that I have been involved somehow, you know, as a whatever partner, promoter, this and that. Uh, now designer, and uh, Jim Farad came in uh, as I hired him for Pravda. And then when Pravda was only one night, then we were looking for another space, and then we found uh, dance, the, the space of Danceteria. So he was my partner at Danceteria at, uh, uh, what you want to call, Peppermint Lounge, uh, Studio 54, and then the second Danceteria where we had the fallout. And, and I mean, uh, the thing is here that uh, Jim is bitter about this fallout uh, up to the date. Uh, up to today, but I'm not. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's, come on, it's 30 years ago, come on. You know? <laughs> but Jim, Jim might get the impression he just fights with everyone sooner or later. You know, yeah, yeah, it's just impossible. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. And, uh, uh, Peppermint Lounge was at the old Knickerbocker Hotel, uh, which then had a gay club called G.G. Barnum's. And this you, uh, I'm sure you didn't go there because it's before your time. But I've heard about it. I de I've definitely heard about it, yes. When I found that space, it still was a gay club, and it had this very odd thing, which had this huge salon with very high ceilings, and it had a drag queen trapeze show in which they were, the, the audience was standing down, down, down uh, in the bottom of the, of the salon. There was a safety net. And there were just drag queens with full <laughs> wigs and boas and so on, like going on a trampeze back and forth. And of course, the highlight was always when one queen was falling down on the net. <laughs> and I thought it was fucking great. And so, can we have that Fenton on a drag race challenge so we can make all the drag queens do trapeze and circus acts? <laughs> 
<laughs> health and safety. Hello, health and safety. We have to do it again. We have to do this again. <laughs> Now we have to get to Tunnel, which it was it was the birthplace of the club kids down in the basement. Yeah. And you were, I for all intents and purposes, you were the godfather of the club kids. You really helped enable Michael Ailig to to do what he wanted to do. Let's let's open that can of worms and go. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I, I have listen. I'm probably one of the last guys, and you too, I guess, uh, James. I mean, I basically well, remain friends uh, with uh, Michael until the end. Yeah. I'm sorry that he departed this way, but uh, you know it seemed inevitable. But I was I was surprised by the amount of hatred I saw once he died. But you would think that after someone died, that that would be the the release that they can let go of the anger and they can move on and that can there can be some healing or or whatever. But no, you're absolutely right. It was shocking. It was pretty shocking. And I do know that that up until the very end, that whenever Michael was um, distressed or he, you know, he knew that he could call you no matter, he, he was always in constant contact with you from, yeah. from the day one. From day one, yeah, because he started at Ancituria at the, the second day. Randy and I were DJing on the fourth floor on Congo Bells, and that's how we met Michael Eilig. He was a busboy, so right. you'd hired him at Ancituria. Right. Tell us about meeting him for the, the first time and what he was like back, back then. No, he was this little kid, uh, that was, it came to the office like twice a week, three times a week. He came to the office uh, uh, in the afternoon, pestering me. He wanted a job, he wanted to do parties, he wanted to do this, he wanted to do that. And I mean, I just, this guy was like, what, 16 years old? Uh, I mean, and his party ideas were not that great, uh, let's face it. They never got any better, frankly, <laughs> but they were fun. <laughs> they were fun, they were exactly. As a, Concept they didn't, uh, but uh, they worked. Uh, and uh, so then uh, I said, in order to get rid of this guy, I, I gave him a job as a busboy. So you know, that maybe he's, now he's going to be quiet. But no, then he came back with football. And then, uh, uh, you know, the, this clubs, the Instituture and other clubs in those days were open seven nights a week. So you had to do a, a programming for seven nights a week. And there were many nights in which, I mean, there's nothing going on. Let's put something. So then one day, let's put Michael Alec on and let's give him this day, this night uh, on the top floor. The first party was the Filthy Mouth contest that he did with me, with me Michael Musto, and Andy Anderson. And Anita Sarko was the MC. And I think he did that just so he could have the names on his, his invitation. <laughs> and people would come. And people got up and spoke filthy to us and got naked and rubbed against us. And it was a huge hit. And he ended up doing it every single year because he knew it was a surefire way to get people naked on stage. But it worked. And this was yes. He made it work. You were the one probably responsible for bringing him in and getting him the uh, party promoter position. Yeah. Uh, what happened at the tunnel was that it opened at the wrong time. Uh, the club took too long and too much money to be open, to to open, because it was this tunnel, you know, seven huge, huge, etc. I had crazy partners. Yeah, Ellie Diane was bananas. He was absolutely insane. Yes. And you should see his partners. He had to fire his partners because there were more bananas than him. Uh, <laughs> it was all like Israeli army and something, people like that. <laughs> Uh, not adequate for club kids, okay? <laughs> but then when it, uh, like a few weeks before Tunnel opened, 
Nels open. And Nels changed the whole scenario because the whole scenario was always big clubs like Palladium and, uh, and Tunnel was going to be a big club. And then suddenly the whole cool crowd or the VIP crowd started, just went to Nels and never left Nels. That was the wait, hell, or heaven's waiting room or whatever for old club people. Well, okay. Uh, but uh, they, then, but, but uh, the tunnel was orphan. I mean, it had no crowd uh, to, to basically be the, the, the magnet for the rest of the, the public, right? And, uh, but then Michael Alec and I sort of came with the idea of the basement at the tunnel, which was this place that had nothing to do, but was really beautiful, a fabulous place. And uh, so we made the headquarters of the club kids at the basement and with the obligation of the club kids to go out into the main room to amuse the rest of the crowd and then come back. And which is a formula then later the limelight uh, undertook. Yeah, you have to dance for your money. You have to, you have to entertain the masses <laughs> before you can go to your little VIP area. That's for the drink tickets, yeah. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and that was a big hit. Uh, I mean, I had many problems, right, of uh, irate parents coming in the afternoon and wanting to strangle me. Because well, that first generation of club kids was, I mean, they were little Upper East Side kids who would dress up in outfits and sneak out of their house uh, apartments and come down and play. Yeah, I mean, it was a very young, young crowd. They were kids. Yeah, they were kids. And uh, it was basically at the beginning of uh, this, this dress-up uh, what you might call this uh, now that's happening cosplay it was the beginning of cosplay it was it was i, I always said it was halloween costumes <laughs> yeah yeah but then what happened uh, once the, 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 the stories that happened i remember that with the batman the first batman movie uh, a bunch of kids decided to become uh, super villains and they started to break in into uh, store warehouses in the, in the neighborhood and uh, just steal bullshit little shits you know the, the <laughs> warehouses dressed as superheroes or super villains and so on <laughs> and, and, I, and i went once i heard this story then i sort of got alarmed because eventually these kids was going were, were going to get caught right and uh and then i would be probably the the evil scientist behind the uh, <laughs> villains and so on and, and uh, so I told him to stop otherwise I would not give them any drink tickets anymore <laughs> that was enough uh, to stop the wave of robberies in the neighborhood the crime wave you stopped a crime wave with drink tickets now you see that's how it's done Rudolph Giuliani could have like solved all of New York's problems just by giving drink tickets. I do remember Michael and the club kids. Um, they did cause a lot of damage in the in the basement tunnel and around the tunnel. I remember them breaking water pipes and, and uh, filling the whole place up with water. Do you remember that? And then everyone would take their clothes off and go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was that was courage. Uh, because it was filthy and you know i mean did you ever see that there was another tunnel below the tunnel the same size you i know, never knew that there is another tunnel there still is another tunnel exactly the same size of the tunnel we know underneath the tunnel and nobody ever threw parties there or snuck down there or it was invaded by homeless people it was and they 
uh, the, 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 this is crazy. It was like, I'm talking about hundreds of them. You know, the problem was that these uh, homeless people through nooks and crannies in these tunnels, they came into the real tunnel and they started to steal bottles of liquor and shit like that, right? I love that, yeah. though. I love that for them. Right. That's great. Like a lot of you wanted to throw a party for them, right? <laughs> well, the, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the homeless people in the tunnel below complained about the noise and managed to get... That's a good one. <laughs> you started to do Mars, and you took Michael with you to Mars. And this is the source of Michael, uh, and you had a, had a, falling, a brief falling out where um, he says his story, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he, this is how he's always explained it, was that you brought him into Mars and he designed the whole place top to bottom. Everything was his idea. The whole concept was his. And then the week before you fired him and said club kids are over. Well, every divorce has two versions, right? <laughs> so no, that's, that's what I've always known. And that's why I'm glad that we're, we have you here to tell us the other side. <laughs> no, I mean, he, uh, I wanted to, to book him uh, to have him there. And I, 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 I took a lot of ideas from him. He had, he had crazy ideas that had to be translated into something that doable in a club. And which is okay. There's, I like to listen to what people know. For instance, he invented this uh, tilted bar on the second floor. It was a bar. The bar was not uh, horizontal. It was tilted. So you serve the drink, and the drink here came down uh, to the other end of the bar, and things like that. <laughs> okay. So the idea was completely crazy. He had some something around that idea that was insane. And I translated it to this. And so it went. But I was uh, concerned with the direction of the, the club kids, that this was getting out of control. It was too many, too many drugs. They were underage. They were this and they were that. And then the, the Japanese, which were the investors. Uh, Yuki, Yuki, Yuki Watanabe, yeah. He was representing Japanese investors. And they got concerned with this also. And then the hip hop came into the scene. In the, while I was building uh, Mars, hip hop came. This was a new trend, and I felt that this new trend was going to go far. And uh, uh, I didn't like the music, and I didn't like the, the 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 crowd in itself. But I thought, well, it's a new trend. I mean, what can I do? It, it is probably going to take over for at least a year or two or three. Little did I know that hip hop is here for 30 years later, right? But, um, and, and so calculating, I saw that the, you know, the Japanese investors wanted a different crowd. The club kids were becoming dangerous. The new crowd was the, the betweeners and the hip hop. I calculated that this was going to be the way to go, which it was, yeah, yeah but with a lot of aggravation. But you had a falling out and how long did that last? And We did not have a falling out. No. I, I explained him that exactly what I'm telling you, and um, and he understood, and um, he went to to uh, to the limelight, and he he basically saved the uh, the limelight. Michael did not really have a reason for many complaints because he really became a star. Let's put it, let's call it this way, at the limelight more than anywhere else, I believe. Failing upwards is is what it was. I do think that, that then Peter sort of maybe took over the the mentorship 
that that you had been giving him. Well, Rudolph, did did you get on with Peter? Like, or were you sort of slightly rival? Were you in competition with each other? Well, we were in competition, but uh, in those days, uh, the the world was not really competition because everybody went to everybody else's club. I mean, I used to go to every single club in town all the time. Uh, and uh, so did the other club owners. I mean, I was the founder of the New York Cabaret Association, which is now called New York Nightlife Association and so on, which congregated every single club owner. And uh, so it was just a very good vibe, a very good climate between everybody. Peter, on the other hand, never went to any other club. Uh, none. Zero. Uh, why I think it's some kind of middle America mentality, although he's Canadian, but I think that's an, sort of in other cities, this mentality does not exist. The people really are competitors in LA, especially and uh, Chicago, etc. He was just maybe an over um, micromanaging his business and he was just always there to take, you know, he didn't have time for other people's maybe. I don't know. You never really saw him even in his club, right? I always think that the club owner has to be a leader of the crowd he attracts. And that's uh, what uh, most club owners in New York in those days used to be. Like Eric and, and you know, Eric Good was a good example of that. Yeah, and, and, and even even uh, uh, Steve Mass at the Mud Club, weirdo as he was, uh, but he was, uh, you know, he, he, was, uh, some, he had some charisma. Uh, I don't know, uh, some, something he had that people felt that. Frank Rocchio, Arthur Weinstein yeah. are good examples of people who, who are probably better partiers than they are man business managers. Oh, no, a club mm -hmm. owner, in those days, a club owner should not be a manager. Uh, that's uh -huh. manager was uh, against the principles. You did end up working for, you did end up working with Peter at, um, Club USA, didn't you? Weren't you brought in at Club USA? No, because at that point I was already in Aspen and LA. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I went to I went to LA in 1990, and uh, Aspen in LA because uh, I went to flew you know, back and forth in those cities. Wait, when was when was Quick? What, 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 tell me about Quick. Quick was Quick, right? It was uh, just after uh, after Mars. That club did not succeed. And that was one of the things that made me basically change crowds, which is uh, that I decided to become a partner at Tattoo in New York and then develop, bring in the Japanese investors into Tattoo, uh, Aspen and uh, LA, and, and so move on to a different crowd. Uh, a crowd in which I would only make uh, a career and make money I did not necessarily have to be there to enjoy myself. I could go to all the other clubs to have fun. And at this, at this club, I would basically, you know, have a business. I remember Michael talking about Quick and saying the whole idea was that it would be over quickly. And so you did make, I mean, was that the thinking that you knew it was going to be a, a quick? No, that, is the, that version of the facts is, is after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was just thrown together quickly. What? Because the name does seem appropriate. <laughs> the name, uh, the name came. Uh, I was. It's, I'm always looking for names. I'm a sort of a name fetishist, and <laughs> therefore 
I basically am researching names, and I, at the moment, at the time, I thought this was an interesting name, considering the, how fast things move and uh, the, the, a quick moment, a quickie, etc. Uh, the, the club was not successful. Uh, I still, it was a little bit too far. Well, it was the old area space, and so there was a bit of nostalgia there. But it also felt like we'd already done this space before, maybe like we'd already been there and done that. Yeah, and, and area. I mean, genius as, as it was, it basically uh, ran its 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 course, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that is, and, and you're right. Uh, people were basically okay with that space now new things and it would be it was i knew that it would be a hard act to follow area in that same space really and i did this design of the lounge area which i am so i'm proud of uh, and it was considered by some magazine as the best design lounge in america and so on and i i thought it was really beautiful the dance floor was not that great but I got lucky enough to be able to sell it. Uh, I sold the club to the guy, uh, Jimmy Regisford. When did South Beach come into play? When? How many years were you in South Beach? Well, South Beach was a, a long time uh, after. I went uh, from um, L.A. Uh, I was basically, I, I, I liked L.A., but I could not adapt to, to L.A. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the two o'clock closing time is, was enough to drive me crazy, and, uh, and and I knew I would end up getting arrested there because you get <laughs> very easily in LA, right? Everyone gets arrested in yeah, LA. Everybody gets arrested in LA, so I was not about to. And then, so I just I, I decided to simply uh, I, I I started to hear voices of destiny saying, "You have to go back to Germany. You have to go back to Berlin." Because this is where you belong to, etc. I said, okay, fine. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go back to New York. I, I don't feel okay in LA. I'm going back to Germany. I lasted there uh, three three months. <laughs> I couldn't stand. I can't stand Germans uh, as a whole. <laughs> I cannot stand it. And then once I was back in Berlin, I realized why I had left Berlin in the first place. <laughs> I can't stand those people. And so I went to, <laughs> and so I went to live in Paris, and nobody ever regretted uh, living in Paris. So at Bandouche, right? Yeah, I did the Bandouche. I did uh, many events. I, I did uh, events at Queens, uh, Queen, at uh, Bandouche, at uh, it was the end of Le Palace, which was really the greatest club, and uh, and and also another place called Cercle Le Doyen, etc. And that's when. Uh, David Guetta, for instance, uh, was uh, one of my DJs at uh, Bandouche and other spaces. And he was basically a house DJ there in, at wow. the club. <laughs> somehow he catapulted himself into this monster that he <laughs> is And uh, so it was basically a different, I mean, I never understood what exactly do the Frenchies want. In, I mean, it's important for uh, somebody that is in clubs to know what is it that the crowd wants. Uh, I'm trying always to decipher that. Uh, in Brazil, I still have not deciphered it either, but they seem to accept whatever I'm presenting them. Yeah. Uh, and there, it's it's interesting, but it was a good preparation to go to South Beach. I left South Beach, uh, Billboard magazine was making 
a, a huge club, a $20 million club in South Beach. And they needed somebody to develop the space because nobody at Billboard magazine knew how to do it. So they, they offered me like crazy money because it would take crazy money to take me out of Paris and uh, to go to South Beach. Uh, because South Beach in those days was sort of like, you know, was not the, the crazy place it used to be, and it was not the place it is now, which, well, you know, it's another LA, sort of. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, and this club was a, a comedy of errors, uh, $20 million down the drain. It was, uh, I mean, just, just for example, it opened one day before 9-11. <laughs> Come on, uh, how, how bad can that be? And so <laughs> the place just, you know, was forgotten immediately. And so there had to be made an, another, a new opening night and, and so on. And the place just never happened. Uh, I mean, I tried everything. I booked everybody. I just in that. The parties, uh, nothing worked at that space. It was amazing. And then, uh, well, and that was for... But it was three years in South Beach, which were nice and opened the way to go back to Brazil. Yeah, and I got I became a partner at Lotus in New York, and then I brought Lotus to Brazil. That's what I did. I now I remember that's another brand. And the rest is history. Um, you talk about being a, a name fetishist and, and coming up with club names. How who came up with the name Danceteria? And and was it was it you? And and tell me, do you remember the story about that? And before you answer that, Rudolph, I love the logo for Danceteria. I thought the graphic logo was so fabulous. It was fabulous. The whole look of it was so yeah. neat and clean and just... It defined the early 80s, didn't it? David King, who is a British designer that still is in New York. It's a very good designer. He did the final art there very well. And um, the name came that we were looking for a name, we had the space, and we were walking on the street, uh, Jim Farad, me, David King, and Sean Cassette, a DJ, very new wave. And somebody there said, we passed in front of a cafeteria, and somebody said, oh, I don't want a cafeteria, I want a danceteria. And I said, I picked on the name, and I said, this is the name, this is the name. And then I had a hell of a, a, a time to convince Jim Parat that this was the name. And I had to, I had to get uh, trendies of the day. The trendies of the day, whoever they are, I don't remember their names anymore. I had to get them to, t them to tell Jim that this was the name. And then finally, like uh, two weeks, three weeks later, he like grudgingly accepted the name. It was some, uh, who knows, I mean, the name... It was not me who, who came up with the word. Uh, somebody in that group came. Years and years and years ago, when I remember interviewing you, I think it was in Paris, actually. You were living in Paris. We interviewed you about for, for the documentary Party Monster. And in that interview, you said something that has stuck with me ever since, which is you said, look, there's basically two New Yorks. There's a New York by day and the New York by night. And really, you need two completely separate worlds and they need they're two completely different societies and governments, you know. Right. And I wondered, I wanted you to talk a little bit about Giuliani and how that idea of these two separate worlds ended with Giuliani and how, um, yeah, just what your sort of experience of him was, because he's a he's a 
evil bastard, right? For sure. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, New York has this uh, reputation of being this uh, crazy place, cool place, and so on. But it has elected a lot of a, a lot, a lot, a lot of big assholes as mayors. Right? Let's face it. You know, it started with, you know, with in the 1930s with with that Fiorello LaGuardia, which was probably the biggest asshole of them all, and he's loved by New Yorkers until now. And I mean, he was another repressive uh, fucker. And he like uh, forbade uh, strip shows. He wanted this. He went, uh, what you call, prohibition, etc. He was just like another, he was a Giuliani. Giuliani, I'm sure, has a portrait of uh, LaGuardia in his uh, office uh, uh, because he adores him, I'm sure. And this is a long tradition of these people. I mean, they, they get elected, LaGuardia, I think, got elected three times as mayor. And... Uh, Giuliani twice and Bloomberg twice. Uh, Bloomberg was another one of those. I mean, it's a succession of repressive people. And uh, nightlife is one of those things that is, there is a branch of uh, uh, sociology called sociology of the night, uh, in which uh, the Frenchies are good at that. Uh, they have many books about this. And uh, they the even is, is a, uh, uh, they, they teach this in some university, uh, and uh, uh, astoundingly, the teachers of this thing came to Brazil some four or five years ago and gave a seminar here, which I went. And it's very interesting because, I mean, I, my theory always was that the great revolutions and counter-revolutions get, uh, get made late night at some dive or some club or some whorehouse or uh, things like that. Uh, here in Brazil, where whorehouses are legal, I basically close every single deal in a whorehouse. You know, it's, it's a perfect way to you know, get things straight, you know, and we all understand each other, and that's fine. And, uh, and so great ideas are, you know, get done and get conceived in these kind of places. And uh, conservatives and repressive people are afraid of that, so they try to limit the, the amount of... Uh, nightlife that you have and the amount of fun people can have and uh, repression seems to be interesting to politically it creates a mentality in the public that um, is more prone uh, for conservatism i mean uh, wilhelm reich is this uh, freud uh, disciple that he wrote a lot about this self-repression uh, and the politics of uh, repression as a conservative tool. So these are my, my philosophical thoughts about Giuliani, who does not deserve actually all this, this blah, 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 because he was just a fucking asshole. And, you know, and I can't believe he's still, like, he's still in American politics somehow, you know, good or bad. Well, his, his license has been suspended, so I think the end is nigh for him. I mean, but... But also, the other thing you were saying is, yeah, so much comes out of nightlife. You know, people think nightlife is ephemeral or somehow not significant, and yet the kind of cultural, so the cultural contribution, the artistic, creative contribution is so huge. Like, I, you know, I think about the club kids all the time in terms of their cultural impact is, is, is everywhere, you know? Yeah. I mean, everything that basically all most trends are, are created in, in, in 
at night, uh, and even uh, artistic movements, right? I mean, Fun Gallery in New York uh, was basically, uh, these people lived at Dancerjury and other clubs, and uh, Keith Haring started painting my, the, the, the entire Dancerjury, etc. So, and the whole expressionist movement in Germany, in Berlin, was all a nightlife movement. Impressionists were basically whorehouse painters, uh, no Toulouse Lautrec, etc. So, yeah, it's it's very important. Um, a question that I'm sure you've been asked a million times, and I think because we're going to close off in a few minutes, but um, what makes a cool club and who are the cool people now? Are there any cool people? They, I mean, every generation has its own cool people, and whether the generation before considers them cool is a different question. And that, uh, well, you know, everybody has his own opinion. I remember uh, when I was a kid uh, with my father, his, his friends were all like what you might call um, uh, libertines from the Weimar Republic. They were all like had their upbringing in the 20s and early 30s. And they were talking about 1950, 1952 or so. They were talking about the good old days, like we are talking now. And they were saying, oh, you know, the, the, the 50s, I mean, this, what is this? This is ridiculous. I mean, who are these people? Yeah, in the Weimar Republic, I mean, what you could do, the parties you have, the women, and the, the drugs we were taking, come on, you know. And, and, and so I was listening as a kid to this, and I said, wow. And, and I think this is the, uh, this is the same. And uh, the kids from nowadays, which have whatever TikTok uh, they play with, they, they will say, you know, when they get uh, older, that the newest generation that comes after is also like... like uh, <laughs> Going to, back to Dance Deteria, what was it that made the crowd? What made the crowd so cool? And what was it that made the club so cool? The ingredients were um, basically a mixture of anything goes. And it had, uh, it had many floors. So you had a, a floor for people that wanted to dance, a floor for people that lounge, a, a, floor, with, a floor with live shows, etc. And also this free, it was different time, this free being, people did not have uh, cell phones, they did not have video cameras, they, uh, the MTV had just started. It was a different uh, set of mind. And um, I, uh, it, what also you said, I was always in, uh, in favor of, uh, you know, whatever crazy idea comes in, I'm in favor. Let's try it out. You said that. And uh, it's true. I mean, the things that happened that, I mean, I remember, for instance, uh, Anne Magnuson, you know, she, is, she was unbelievable. She did great shows with Joey Arias. Then one day she came and said, I want to make an accordion show inside the elevator of Dance in Syria. I said, great. I mean, this is what, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so these elevators, you remember, they, they fit like five people, you know, and one of them was uh, Ann Magnuson playing accordion all night. And you had like, the, it's the, the first elevator in, in the world that had live music in the <laughs> elevator. Come on, I mean, it, 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 accordion. I read an interview that Steve Lewis did with you and he asked you what your favorite club of all time was. And you said that it would have been Danceteria, but you've changed your mind and that it was now Palladium. And I kind of agree with you on that, that Palladium probably was 
the best club. It doesn't get the love that the other club does, but it was amazing. It was the greatest club. I mean, it was unbeatable. Look at the the, the home setup of this club. It was majestic. It was a cathedral of clubs and the budgets they had. I mean, the the, the shows we did, they, because I mean, it had to fill. 10,000 people, right? They had 10,000 capacity, illegal, but uh, legally it could fit 6,000 or so, legally. Open seven nights a week. It's crazy in those days. I mean, what, what could you imagine? What city in the world has clubs now that size, open seven nights a week and packed? And packed with fabulous people. I mean, really, there you know, there, there might have been some you know middle middling people on the dance floor, but that um, Michael Todd room was always spectacular, always filled. I remember the Grace Jones party. I remember um, Madonna and Keith Haring. I remember that Sig Zig Sputnik on New Year's Eve that was probably my favorite party of all time. I remember the boy George in bed. I remember Princess TNT dancing on the table there at her birthday party. I mean, some of like my best memories are are at Palladium. No, it was a great, incredible club, and also uh, the big the big failure. At my my big my heart is still broken uh, because I prepared the Liberace party. Liberace was doing shows at the at the Radio, Radio, Radio City, Hall. yeah, and. Uh, and I always wanted to do a party for Liberace. And uh, finally, through uh, John Sachs, and uh, John Sachs basically made this introdu introduction, and uh, we talked to Liberace to go into this party at the Palladium on a Sunday night, uh, hosted by Steve Cohen and so on. And I made, I mean, I went out and about to make the promotion. We did a decor that was unbelievable. We rented uh, some eight or ten white uh, pianos, uh, like with the big ones, uh, what you might call them, uh, with uh, uh, pianists uh, dressed in white tuxedos, playing all over the club, pianos, so on, everything. And only 2,000 people came. I mean, I expected like 10,000, right? I mean, would you would you not go to a Liberace party? Come on. Who, why did people not go to a Liberace party? It just blows my mind. <laughs> Come on. I love the idea of John Sex and the Liberace being friends. I think that's such a, a wonderful thing that just makes my heart, like, warm. I imagine working with Steve Rubell was, you, you could probably write a whole book on that one as well. I mean, your relationship with Steve, because I mean, it was there, I, what what a quintessential New York nightlife character. And he was fabulous, a fabulous guy, <laughs> loved it. And, I mean, the, the, the meetings there, the, 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 <laughs> every Tuesday there was this big meeting with a big table of everybody sitting there and discussing what was next and what what went wrong and this and that and then the telephone rang and then the jump journalist was on the phone interrupt the meeting there is like uh, henry post is on the phone or something like this and, and it was in, beautiful to see how he twisted always the minds of the journalists how he took them from the complaint from the bad gossip into a whole different level of fabulousness of dream come true. He made them sort of like, and that's okay, then hang up. And then next question. <laughs> a modern day PT Barnum. Rudolph, have you ever thought of writing a book? Are you writing a book? Are you, do you have your memories? Do you, I think that's, that's what we need from you more than. 
<laughs> yeah, because the book, I wrote the book. It's about, yeah. only about stories. It's not about history, like with the big age. No, it's about little stories of the night, because I think that the nightlife is that. It's the stories that happen. And you have to, has to be a story. You cannot be, oh, I went out, got drunk, got laid. That's, not, that's fine for you, but it's not a story. Uh, uh, no stories. And I wrote this, but I wrote it in Portuguese because I was about to publish it here. Now I say maybe I have to publish, I have to translate this to English because uh, here it will have a limited run because people don't know all this. Is this the, the rise and fall of the mega discotheque? Is this the, that the name of the, the um, after hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After hours, the rise and fall of the mega discotheques. Yes. Yeah, you finished it and it's it's completed and you. Yeah, it's finished. Yeah. I think we see a project here. I think yeah. we need to get that to a New York publisher. Well, I mean, it has to be translated. I don't have the time to. But that that can be done. There there are uh, interns to do that. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I'm game. Uh, the the club is the the book is ready. Uh, I mean, I am updating it every year or so because people now come and go and die and are suddenly they are famous and now they're not, etc. And uh, there is also at the end, the last chapter is about sociology of the night, which is something that I'm really into. Uh, uh, so when the rest is little stories, all this, all the stories that we're told now are in the book and much more. Well, I, I feel like learning Portuguese just so I can read it and, and translate it. I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> Get your assistant to do that. <laughs> I mean, Right. Rudolf, it has been so delightful to talk to you and to see you and so great to see you looking so well and just we miss you. I think, I you know, I think New York misses you. It's uh, um, so but I can't wait to come to Brazil. I will look you up because I heard in Brazil someone built the uh, RuPaul's Drag Race workroom in a bar and there's a bar that has the RuPaul's Drag Race workroom. So I think we have to come. We have to come and do something in Brazil. So. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Uh, come over. Let's have fun. Let's make a party. How just great it is just to hear your voice again and just to see you. It's just, it's been a real thrill. And, and I thank you. I, it took a lot to get you here. And we, we managed to do it. And we've done it. But God, I'm really happy that we got we were able to do it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you, guys. It's really good to see you also. Money, success.